Open your Bibles, if you would, this morning to the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4. We've been in this, in this letter, oh, someone's not happy, we've been in this letter for several weeks now and, um, and want to stay, listen to the sermon. Yeah. Um, Paul's been writing to the Ephesian church and he wants his brothers and sisters to understand their radical new status. In Christ. We've been talking about that the last several weeks. Uh, they are now in Him, which is to say, in Christ. We are in Him, in Christ. Radical change in our status. We're His by adoption, that is to say, He's adopted us as our children. We're His because we're part of a community of believers. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we're also in a family, household. That's the word that He used. So we've established all of that in the first three chapters, and again, it, it, it's radical. It's radical because, um, it's hard for us to appreciate this, radical because it was, these ideas were totally foreign until it happened, until the incarnation, the life, the ministry of our Lord, the idea that the division between Jew and Gentile would simply be gone in the person of Christ, that God would make one new body of the two people. That, that was unknown. Um, and the idea that we can touch eternity in this life, the connection between eternity and now became so real in the person of Christ. That, that's all radical, and it's all to our benefit. We ta we've talked about the benefits that are ours, the privileges, if you will, um, that we gain as being part of his household, being citizens of heaven, being members of a community, right? And we started to ask the question a couple weeks back, with all these benefits coming our way, what's our part you know, in the deal? What are our responsibilities? And we're looking at that. Well, this morning we're going to get a real clear answer to that as far as what's our part in this deal. If indeed he's made us his children, he's made us citizens of his kingdom, he's made us part of his household, what is our part? So this morning that's what we're going to start looking at, our part in the deal. So if you would follow along, we're reading the first 13 verses, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And it reads this way, I therefore, Paul writes, the prisoner of the Lord entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were all called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith. One baptism. Wouldn't God and Father over all who is through all and in all? But to each one of us, the grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? And he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that our hearts and minds would simply be open to you, um, open to what you have for us in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And before we go any farther, because I know some of you are wondering what happened to my thumb, uh, stupidity. Yeah. 
it's, I suffered a bout of stupidity and decided to try to cut the end of it off. But it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. So now everybody knows you can stop wondering. All right, so we're talking about our part in, in the deal, right? What we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to be uh, doing. And Paul really summarizes it, at, le at, at least for, for our, our purposes this morning, Paul really summarizes it with a single phrase. And again, if we, can, if we can get our minds around it, it's radically different. You know, the Old Testament has, according to some scholars, 613 different laws. That's a lot of laws to try to keep, 613. Yeah, but Paul manages to pretty well distill it down to one. Now, each one of those 613 laws, by the way, pointed to the person of Jesus. Everything about all the laws of the Old Testament, all the commands, all the directions, all of that pointed to Jesus. And then together, give a very, very complete picture of Christ. But none of that is as complete as the picture as when we follow this one directive, this one thing Paul has to say. Right? Paul says that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. It's, and that, again, that's different. Rather than saying, okay, you're in this relationship with God now and you got all these laws you need to fulfill because of that. No, this is saying, nah, yeah, you're in a relationship with your God now, but as an expression of that relationship, your walk, your conduct, your way of living, rather than follow a specific list, your very being, the very conduct of your life should express naturally as the result of God being in you and our being in him we should naturally be expressing his character, walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called, right? That's our question this morning. What does that mean? What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of our calling? Well, it starts with the word walk. Pretty straightforward. Um, in fact, Paul not only says it here, he also uses it over in verse 17 when he says this, I say therefore and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of your mind. So there's a way we're supposed to walk and a way we're not supposed to walk. Obviously, this word walk is, is a really, really big word, right? We are to walk, he said, accordingly. So let's talk about the word walk. It is the, um, the word that he actually used, and that's always our concern because when we hear that, you know, we have an understanding. When we say walk in a certain fashion, we, you know, something comes to mind, right? But our concern has to be, what did Paul have in mind when he wrote it? That's always where we start. Where did the author of Scripture start? And the word that Paul uses is a word many of you will recognize. It's the word peripateo. Peripateo. And that comes right into English. If it's going, that sounds familiar, it, because it, it comes into English as peripatetic. And um, we have a lot of those around here. In fact, we're, we're rife with peripatetics. Uh, Sherry, back there in the kitchen, she's she, she got a bad, got a bad. Doc, Dr. Ellen, oh, she's serious peripatetic. Uh, where'd Joyce go? Where's she at? Serious, serious peripatetic. It just means somebody that likes to walk, right? <laughs> we got a lot of people in this fellowship. Yeah, some of you know, were nervous, weren't you? Yeah, uh, we got, they just love to walk. Not just for the purpose of getting from point A to point B, but actually have discovered you know, the, what a wonderful, healthy, and just all kinds of benefits. We won't go into that. Uh, it's well documented. But a peripatetic is somebody that just really, really likes to walk. But obviously when Paul uses it here, it means more than that. 
He's not just talking about moving our feet to get someplace, even if it's for just enjoyment. It's being used to describe the whole of one's life, how one lives, uh, what we do habitually, how we're known, people observing us, what, what actions characterize our lives. Um, it's, it's a big, big word that describes the whole of our life. Um, and it's had that meaning for a long time. It, it had that meaning in Greek, even, even as it has in English. We use that word the same way in English. You know, we use expressions like, you know, that fella, he, he walks to the beat of a different drummer. We don't mean he's actually out there with a drum being beaten, unless it's Sunday morning and you're near the Salvation Army. How many of you have ever been in a place where the Salvation Army actually used the drum? It's very effective. You cannot say, I didn't make it to church this morning, I overslept. Anywhere where the salvation, because they lay into that thing, man. Used to drive Joyce nuts in Huna because, you know, we'd already be awake, and it was irritating. Said, bam, 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 but it worked. Right? That's not what it's talking about. When he says, we say somebody walks to the beat of a different drum, we mean that there's a different tenor, there's a different tone, there's different motivations. But we use the word that way, and we understand it. We kind of understand it instinctively that we mean that word walk in a metaphorical or symbolic in a way. But you ever wonder why that word? There's a lot of other words we could come up with that would, you know, adequately describe the whole of one's life. You know, the book of Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So the way we think, you know, other, other different words we could use to describe the whole of one's life. Why this particular word walk, right? Well, at least in the Greek language, and by extension, um, our emphasis of this word, or our using this word walk to express the whole of one's life, what would certainly have been on the Apostle Paul's mind when he used it, it would have come down to two guys. There's two guys. So if you can go ahead and pull that up, Alex. These two guys are why we use the word walk the way we do. Um, the one on the left uh, is, is Plato, and the one on the right is, is Aristotle, right? And the reason, the reason the word walk is so much associated with these two guys. And some of your teachers may appreciate this. The first thing these guys did when they were teaching their students, of course, you know, famous philosophers, they taught students, was get them outdoors. They got them out of the building, and they would walk. And they would walk around the city, and they would interact with people. Um, Plato especially loved to go down to the marketplace and just walk through the marketplace and interact with people and ask them questions. And he would, you know, after they answered, he'd show them how wrong they were. I mean, how popular that was, but that's what he did. And Aristotle, kind of the same thing. Aristotle focused more on the conversations with his students. But they were walkers. And as they walked, they taught, and through that came the idea that this word walk, and it really happened about a generation uh, after Aristotle's passing. Um, a guy named Epimenos was the guy that actually started using the word walk in this more complete fashion, talking about the, the whole of, of somebody's life. Now, that was, that was these guys, right? But the picture actually expands. Actually, can I'll look at the next one? Um, this is from the famous fresco, you, you probably know that, um, called the School of Athens. Not all these people ever were in the same place, right? They, they didn't pose for the picture. In fact, most of the images aren't the right people. Um, Raphael, the 27-year-old guy that, that did this fresco, uh, he put people that he knew in place. You know, for example, if, if Plato looks an awful lot like da Vinci, that's he used da Vinci's face, right? Didn't know what Plato looked like. So this is a collection of like 
like, there's like 58 people there, but a lot of them are just like stand-ins. But there's about 20 people in that picture who can be identified with specific great philosophers or teachers or mathematicians, all of which build the foundation of Western civilization. If you've seen this picture, pretty good chance it was in like a Western Civ course. Because these guys and ladies, some really important ladies in there too, um, build the foundation of, of Western thinking, right? And they naturally kind of fall into two camps. If you notice, the picture's divided like right down the middle. And like everybody on the left side are people who primarily thought like Plato. And people on the right side are people who primarily taught like, thought like Aristotle, right? But they're, they're in the same place. They're in the same room, and they're not killing one another, right? In fact, if you'll notice, there's generally a sentiment um, of congeniality in the whole group, and that was, very, that was very deliberate. But the attention obviously goes to the two guys in the center. And there's some very deliberate things that stand out about the two guys in the center. Now, by the way, we're not attributing godliness to any of these people, and I don't know that Raphael would, but to say, talk about their influence and to use their thinking and their lives to, to teach us something. The two guys in the center, the first thing you notice, or I know would notice, is while everybody else is fairly static, like staying in one place, they're walking. They are moving from this open kind of infinite expanse in the back, which was a Raphael thing, I guess, to they're coming into the building, but they're moving. Again, they're walking. That's, that's the whole point. They're represented. The whole manner of their teaching was all about walking, the method by which they taught. And that's where this word began to take on this, this wider connotation of walk as the whole of one's life with one big difference with where we are today, and that is the whole idea of morality was absent. There wasn't like a right walk and a wrong walk. And the only way at this point at which a walk could be considered right would be if it worked. And a walk would be considered wrong was if it didn't work. Like if you know, somebody's walk, if their habit of life was, was to spend their day all liquored up, that generally doesn't work out too well, right? That's not the key to happiness. So that would be considered a bad walk, but never in a moral sense, right? So we can go ahead and Alex take this off. Where the word picks up its moral sense, and this, may, this was kind of a surprise for me, it's when Jewish scholars started to use it. In the writing of the Septuagint, we've talked about that before, when they translated the Old Testament, which is in Hebrew, into Greek, because most Jews at that point couldn't read Hebrew anymore. They needed it in Greek. And it's a really important document because we use it to trace the development of the language. And this is a classic example. And when Jewish scholars started to use the word, they began to add a very strong ethical moral, or we could say spiritual, emphasis. Listen to um, Hezekiah's prayer in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 3. It reads this way. Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you. This is the prayer that he prayed, but he was really thick. He said, I beseech you. I've walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and done what is right in your sight. And see, the Greeks wouldn't have used the word that way because it had too much of a moral connotation. God, I've, I've lived my life morally you know, in a morally sound way, I would hope you take that into consideration when you, you know, answer my prayer or hear my prayer. So that was a change that the Jewish scholars introduced. And then listen to this one. This is Ecclesiastes 11.9. And I'm reading from the New American Standard, and it doesn't actually use the word walk. But the word peripateo is there. And, and try to figure out which one it is. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood. Let your heart be pleasant during the days of your young manhood. 
and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for these things. Where the Jewish scholars use the word peripoteo, to walk, was in that expression, follow the impulses of your heart. Follow the desire of your eyes. But be mindful that God will bring you into judgment for these things. So the Hebrew scholars were saying, yes, this word talks about the whole of one's life, even if it's not necessarily the right thing, but it's who you are, so follow it, walk in that, but be mindful. God will judge you for it. So this even brought the idea of eternal judgment to bear on this word walk. And so you can see how the word is really growing. But where it really gets interesting is after the close of the Old Testament, when the scholars were through translating the Old Testament, there were some more Jewish works that were produced in between that time and the coming of Christ. And we call that the Apocrypha. It's in some Bibles if you've got it. We don't consider it to be inspired text, but we learn a lot from it, and this is an example how. When, excuse me, when the Jews were writing these very mystical, kind of far-out things um, in what we call the War Scrolls, as an example, it's, found in the, it's included in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they were using this word, they added a whole other element to it, and that was the element of there being like two sides in this thing, right? There's the good guys associated with light, and the bad guys associated with darkness. And our place as people are to walk with the good guys and not walk with the bad guys because we are sons of day and sons of light. And the bad guys, like the demons, they're sons of darkness. Does that sound familiar? It should because Paul uses that exact terminology. Paul says we are all sons of light and sons of day. Now, that doesn't mean Paul bought everything they, that those, those folks believed. But Paul picked up their vocabulary to describe the believer. We are sons of light. We are sons of day. Even John picked up that vocabulary. First John. If you can find it in my notes here. First John chapter, yeah, first John chapter two. I'm lost in my notes. There it is. First John chapter two. John writes this. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I want to read that again, and please, listen to it carefully. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie. Do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us. From all sin. That's a real big picture verse because it, it wraps up a whole lot of what it is to be a Christian. Uh, German scholar Gunther Abel, talking about this particular verse, noted this, and this is a paraphrase. He said, Walking in the light isn't just walking in a way that is good. Walking in the light, in the light, is walking with our face toward God. Pursuing the light, walking toward the light. Walking in the light is walking in fellowship in a communal relationship with God. So walking in the light is both relational, we walk with God, and it is moral, we walk toward God, guided by God. So you can see, the reason we go through all this is to show how this idea, this word walking, grew and grew and grew to encompass a whole range, virtually the whole of our lives. The good parts, the bad parts, 
the practical parts, the practical things we do, the everyday stuff we do, and the more spiritual, we might think, things we do. Pull that, that first image jack up if you go in. This was where it really hits, you know, the rubber hits the road uh, for us in understanding this concept. One of the things that scholars have made a huge deal over in this painting are the hands, okay? Note, if you will, Plato's hand is pointed up, right? Aristotle's hand is pointed down. And I would suggest in a somewhat more forceful way, right? Maybe me. People that are into philosophy have indicated that those two gestures are consistent with the nature of their philosophy. Plato being more concerned with large cosmological ideas, like the ideal, the logos, the word, the ultimate reality, whereas Aristotle was more like, let's talk about what works here on planet Earth, right? And between the two of them, they pretty well frame Western thinking. Between those two ideas, let's talk about the big cosmological picture, and some would say maybe perhaps more Aristotle, let's talk about planet Earth, they form the way we think far more than we realize. It's almost impossible for us to have a thought in our head that's not influenced by these two people. And just as one example, um, you tell your friend you're going dip netting, and they go, what's that? We're going to catch fish. What do they do in their mind? They immediately create a series of visuals of what that might be. It's got fins. It's got gills. It swims in the water. What kind of fish? Salmon. Oh, they narrow the list now. What kind of salmon? Red salmon. They identify a single, is species the right word? Right. That whole, is it? Species is the right one, thank you. That entire process, Aristotle, from word go, that whole process of categorizing and all those things, if you remember back in biology you had to memorize, it's his fault. Yeah. So our thinking is totally saturated in the way these two guys thought and taught as they walk through life, right? It's all about our walk. The complete encompassment of both things that are vastly ethereal and spiritual and cosmological and the most everyday mundane of decisions we make. It is all wrapped together. And both parts have to be there. I had to laugh this morning. I was really, really, really questioning just how practical is this, right? Is this really practical stuff? And um, Joyce and I had a certain disagreement <laughs> yeah, about something it wasn't that important. But we had a disagreement. And um, I, I'm not going to say anything that was said, but it got, a little, it got a little terse there for a bit. But it had to do with the fact that I tend to think in broader pictures. And Joyce is very specific. And I thought, oh, my word. I'm Plato. And she's Aristotle. <laughs> Which brings me back to the fact that Aristotle's gesture is a little more forceful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, it's the painting. Blame Raphael. He was only 27 years old, so you got to cut him some slack, right? The point is, and, and you can take that down now. The point is, these two together make a complete picture of who we are, both individually and corporately, right? That's why it's so important. What did he say? He said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. That's why it was so important to settle the matter of status first, understand our calling, know who we are, because 
Understanding who we are influences how we walk. Understanding who we are in Christ influences, informs, ultimately determines how we walk. Walking in the light isn't just a matter of knowing rules and regulations and laws. It's a matter of knowing who we are in Christ, walking and acting accordingly, facing forward toward the person of God, knowing that, trusting in him. Because he sees everything in our lives. More importantly, he is intimately interested in every single part of our life, every part, every moment, not simply as judge but as loving father. And he looks upon us with all the attention and all the focus of a perfect, loving, and father. It's also walking in a community of believers. After all, there are 58 people in that painting. It's not just those two guys. It's all those who gathered around them. And in verses 2 through 6 is where Paul talks about unity. And again, I'll, I'll leave you to go over those verses yourself on your own. But just to say this in general, because he's talking about unity. And he uses expressions like one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Um, isn't it funny that in the body of Christ, that's not funny at all, actually. In the body of Christ, when we get together, Paul's talking about unity. We all know that. It's obvious from the text. Even the title of the chapter is unity or something like that. Um, that's the title we've given it. That when Christians get together and talk about one Lord, one faith, one baptism, what do we do? We argue about it. Well, I think that one baptism is this baptism. Well, what do you do with, there's, you know, there's more than one, how's that work? And we get kind of animated, and sometimes even at cross purposes, his whole point is, no, there is this one. So, for example, it doesn't matter if you were sprinkled, or if you were immersed, or if you got baptized in a church, or you got baptized in a river, or if you got baptized in a hole dug in the desert lined with raincoats. As our soldiers did in Iraq and Afghanistan. There's one. If you're baptized in Christ, you're baptized in Christ. Even the formula, as important as it is, is not enough. You know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even that's not important enough to divide the body of Christ. And it's understanding the commonality that we share that brings us into unity. Paul points out that everything we have, we have in common. Our common need. Our common need for a Savior. Boy, I couldn't help myself. This may, this may ring a bell with some of you or resonate with some of you. Going through this whole, this whole chapter, there was like three times I had to just stop and put in the old ACDC song. Not ACDC, DC Talk, sorry, boom. DC Talk, yeah. I did not, no. Not this week, yeah. The old DC Talk song. I'm going to be in the light as he is in the light. I'm going to shine like the stars in the heavens. Lord, be my light and be my salvation. We have that common need to be saved. We have the common experience of salvation. We have the common presence of the Holy Spirit acting in our lives. And we have the common experience of a walk drawn towards God. Verses 7 through 13, and again, I'll let you go with those yourself. You can read it again. Paul speaks of the giftedness of the church. And if, you, if you've read the gifts of the church in Romans and Corinthians, you know that some are very spiritual, some are very practical. Just as one guy pointed up, the other guy pointed down. Right? Interestingly, if, um, 
When we talk about spiritual giftedness in the greater context of the church, we often ask the question, what gift has God given you? Right? That's the wrong question. The question is, what gift has God given the church through you? Because to the extent that any one of us has a gift, and it, which we do, he gifts us. It doesn't matter if it's a specifically spiritual gift, like the list here, pastors, teachers, evangelists, prophets, those spiritual gifts. Or if it's talking about, again, the more mundane things that appear in Corinthians and Romans, like the gift of helps. That just means the ability to provide practical help. The gift of governance, that means administrative help. It doesn't matter whether it's a, a very, what we think of as a spiritual gift or a very practical gift. They're given to us as individuals on behalf of the church for the benefit of his body. You see, being mindful of these things, being mindful of these things, our common need, our common savior, our common experience, our common place in the body, our common giftedness, being mindful of what we hold in common is what brings unity in the church. How many sermons have you heard on unity? To what end? To what profit? Because unless we're given a very compelling reason to act in unity, our human nature will always pull us the other way. Our natural human skepticism will always pull us away. Alex, if you would bring up picture number two once more, and we'll close with this. We'll close with this. Um, there's one guy in the whole painting that's not interacting with anybody. Right in the middle. One person who's not interacting with anybody. Most scholars would identify him with Diogenes, the cynic, who didn't buy any of the stuff anybody else was saying. Totally sufficient to himself. Hence, alone. That's not God's plan for us. Right? Diogenes was a great thinker. I just don't think he contributed anything because of his self-sufficiency. God, deliver us from that lie that we are self-sufficient. Father, I thank you for your word and that, um, Father, this young, this young painter, um, and Father, I, I don't, of course, I've never met the man, don't know the full depth of his experience of you, but certainly as he did this uh, fresco in the walls of the Vatican, he expressed the profound truth, Lord, that all of us, while we think of ourselves at a point in space and time, all of us at the same time, Father, are on a journey, a walk, and it encompasses the whole of our experience, Lord. And that's what you're focused on. That's your concern for us, Father. You see and are intimately concerned with every moment, every detail. We are never not under your gaze. We are never beyond your concern. Right? You watch over us. And Father, Paul's instruction to us is that our daily walk simply reflect that reality. Father, there's a confidence in that we can have that as we go out the doors and we encounter whatever we encounter, Lord, you're right there with us. You're engaged with us. We're never alone, Father, because you have placed us in a body of believers, Lord. And God, keep us from that thought that we can do it on our own. It's such a lie. Father, thank you, Lord, for... Um, this body of believers which you have gathered, Father. And as your word says, you are building up. You 
are fashioning together. You, Father, this body of believers, you're bringing to the place, Father, of the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Father, I pray we'd simply be found cooperative to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.